Hear the word of God as it is written in the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 4, 1st for 12 verses. Finally, brothers, we instruct you to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects his instruct, this instruction <clears throat> does not reject God, a man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do, more, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily, daily life may win the respect of outsiders and, that so, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Amen. And may God add to our understanding that reading from his word. Okay. Well, let's, let's uh, come before God in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we pray now that you would help us to be quiet, uh, to uh, still our minds and our hearts so that we would be focusing on you and grant, Lord God, through your spirit that you'd give us a heart that is really willing to think, that, to consider these issues and to uh, respond in a way that uh, brings glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk about ambitions, uh, ambitions in life, and uh, ask you, what are your ambitions in life? I remember when I was a late teenager, I had some ambitions in life. Uh, my ambition, as I recall, was to get a good education so that I could get a good job, uh, find a nice girl and get married to her, uh, live in a nice house and have a happy family. Uh, that was pretty much my ambition as a late teenager. Uh, it's not a bad ambition, is it? In fact, that's a kind of a very common ambition. That's the sort of thing that uh, lots of people want. It's very common. But some people have ambitions to excel over and above uh, other people, to get to the top in a particular field, uh, ambition to get to the top in the workplace or on the sporting field, uh, or to become famous or rich or powerful in some way. And uh, those ambitions then drive uh, the way that they uh, plan their lives and what they get involved in. So I wonder what are your ambitions? Do you have ambitions? Do you have plans? Do you have goals that you want to achieve? Of course, uh, sometimes life gets a bit complex, doesn't it? And in the complexity of life, 
Sometimes it's very hard to even think about ambitions. Uh, sometimes, to be quite honest, my ambition will be to simply get to the end of the day in one piece. You know what I mean? <laughs> you feel that way sometimes? Or to get to the end of the week, uh, or to get to the end of the, the school term. Uh, these are short-term ambitions, but the complexity of life uh, means that sometimes we think in those terms. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which you might want to have open, we hear from God about ambition. And uh, this is a passage which actually tells us that Christians should be ambitious people, that we should be very ambitious people. But the question is, what sort of ambitions? What should we be ambitious about? Now, remember that Paul wrote this uh, letter to Christians uh, people who'd been converted, who lived in the Greek city of uh, Thessalonica. And he starts off this section of the letter in verses 1 and 2 by urging them to live their lives with one very big ambition. Can you see what the ambition is in verses 1 and 2? It's a, uh, it's a very straightforward ambition. Uh, it's an ambition that is not particularly ambiguous, uh, Paul wants their ambition to be to live a life which pleases God. That's the ambition. You see that? It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, after all, God is the creator of the entire universe. Uh, after all, God is the one who has saved us by the precious blood of his own son, Jesus. And so why wouldn't we not want to live our lives to please God. It's easy to say that though, but the question is, how passionate about it are we? Uh, how single-minded are we about it? Is that really the thing which drives us? And what does it mean to please God? Uh, what should this ambition lead us to do? Well, of course, there's a lot that can be said about that, but in this passage... It seems to me that Paul focuses on just two areas of life. I've nailed it down to two. We could expand it out, but I've nailed it down to two. Two areas of life that are actually the same for us today. And so you could imagine that this was written yesterday, not 2,000 years ago. Two areas of life. What are they? Well, first of all, if our ambition is to please God, then uh, one huge area of life is the marriage bed. And that's what Paul talks about uh, in verses 2 through to 8, the marriage bed. Uh, the Thessalonians, how do you say that, by the way? Is it Thessalonians or Thessalonians? I, there was a debate in our household about it. I'm going to, okay, we'll, we'll go with Dorothy's. The Thessalonians, okay? The Thessalonians lived in a very immoral world. Remember, Thessalonica is in Greece, and uh, Greece was famous for its philosophers. And uh, that uh, we talked about this in the 1 Corinthians series, that uh, some of the Greek philosophers taught that there was this distinction between the physical world and the spiritual world. And that the physical world uh, didn't really matter all that much. What mattered was the spiritual world. And so what they said was it doesn't really matter 
what you do with your body because your body is just matter. Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just flesh. I should put that differently. It's just flesh, so it doesn't matter. Whereas your spirit, uh, that's really what matters. And so what this led to uh, was uh, a um, uh, very laxed uh, sexual conduct. In fact, uh, sexual immorality was part and parcel of some of the uh, worship of some of the ancient Greek gods. They didn't have this high moral view. And so in verse 3, Paul says to these Thessalonians that they've got to be different to that. And he says that it talks about them being sanctified. Now, uh, sanctified, that's kind of a religious term. You don't see it much except for in the Bible. It comes from the same Greek word that's translated as to be holy. And so it means to be different, to be set apart, to stand out from others around you. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's hard for us because uh, like the Thessalonians, we live in a society which is highly sexualized, where uh, it is soaked in sexual immorality. Now, think about it. Uh, someone said to me over morning tea, do I think that sexual temptation is more difficult for men to resist than it is for women? Uh, that's a big topic. Um, but uh, one thing I do know is that uh, men are very aroused visually. Uh, visual stimulation is all that it takes. And we live in a society which, where you know, pornography is available at the click of a mouse where there's uh, visual stuff all over the place that is just luring, seducing men uh, in that way. Think about uh, young people. In our society, young people, are, it's expected that young people will have multiple sexual partners before they get married. If they even get married. Because that's gone and pretty much out of, out of fashion. And what is marriage anyway? I mean, uh, governments around the world are succumbing to pressure uh, to redefine what marriage is so that uh, they are redefining it so that uh, a man can now get married to a man and a woman can get married to a woman. And so we don't even know what marriage actually is. It's changing. What about adultery? That's a funny word, isn't it? It's a bit, a bit of an antique word, actually, isn't it? Do we use the term adultery much these days? Not a lot. I mean, it just sounds a bit judgmental. Uh, people prefer to talk about having a fling or something fluffy like having an affair and so on. That's kind of the world, you know, that's a simplified, short, you know, version of what the world we live in is like. But in verse 3... Uh, Paul says that rather than us indulging in sexual immorality, that we should avoid it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he goes a bit harder than that. Uh, he doesn't talk about avoiding sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about fleeing. 
sexual immorality. He says, run from it, escape from it, get as far away from it as you possibly can, avoid it, get away from it at all costs, flee from sexual immorality. And why? Well, here in this passage, uh, he gives two main reasons. And I'll just try to expand on these. Firstly, in verse 6, he says, and, this, in, and in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it seems to me that the word brother here is, uh, is a very general term. And the point that Paul is making, which he expands on more in 1 Corinthians 6, the point he's making is that when sex is used outside of God's purpose for sex, which is in the context of marriage, then people are wronged. People are taken advantage of. People get hurt and people are damaged. And so the two people involved in the sexual immorality, they are damaged. Uh, If either of them is married, then their spouse and their family are damaged and hurt. Uh, If the person is not married and they have sex with someone, then that actually has implications and consequences for their future marriage or their future life partner that they don't think about at the time. That's good enough reason to stay away from sexual immorality, to flee from it to avoid it. But secondly, if that's not bad enough, in verses 6 and 7, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that God would punish men for such sins. And we need to think this through as Christians because if we are Christians, then God, Paul points out, has not called us to to be impure. Uh, His purpose for us, his goal... And the reason why Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins is so that we wouldn't be like the world, so that we would change, we would be different, that we would be a people unto God, holy, sanctified, different. That's what he says in verse 7, where he talks about going on to live a holy life. Now, One of the things which encourages me greatly is when I meet up with uh, Christian people who, because of God's work in their lives over many years, have acted in fidelity, in faithfulness, have been committed to to one another to the exclusion of all others for a very long period of time. Someone was telling me this morning about being committed and married to uh, <coughs> their, their, their spouse for 50 years, or was it 60 years? You know? uh, it's amazing. And, and this is great, greatly encouraging to us because uh, we see that that is an ambition that is worth uh, pursuing. Uh, we might have many ambitions in life, the ambition to get a good job or to own a nice house or to succeed in sport or education, but none of those ambitions comes anywhere near in terms of value and importance as the ambition to be faithful in the, in, in the bedroom, 
for the rest of our lives, to be committed uh, to our spouse uh, in fidelity. The ambition to be holy in the bedroom. In fact, I know of Christians who have given up some of their small ambitions to have a better house and a more successful career and a job that pays more money to buy the things which they could, the creature comforts. They've given up some of those ambitions uh, because they've seen that by pursuing those ambitions it was actually going to cause um, uh, difficulties in their marriage, that it was going to separate them from their spouse, uh, that it was going to lead them into areas where it would be more difficult to avoid sexual immorality. And so they said, no, don't want it. Uh, and they've given up those ambitions because they've had a higher ambition, which is to please God. So we should be ambitious for God's will, and God's will in verse 3 is that we should be sanctified and in verses 3 to 8, in the bedroom. Now, the second big area where we must be different is in the area of love. Uh, and here it's referring to brotherly love. I think that's in verse 9, isn't it? In verse 9, now about brotherly love. That's a lovely word, that brotherly love. Um, in the Greek, it's the word Philadelphia. Uh, you know the city Philadelphia? I tell you what, you see some of the gangs on the streets in Philadelphia and it don't much look like the city of brotherly love. <laughs> but that's what it means. It's, uh, it means brotherly love. It's, it's different from uh, the agape love, which uh, is a love which is a committed love, which is for all people. This is specifically love amongst the, uh, uh, the, the brethren, amongst fellow Christians. So this is the big area, the area of brotherly love. I was interested to read Friday Sydney Morning Herald about some research that was published by two Harvard University academics. Uh, one of them is a man by the name of Robert Putman, who is not a believer in God, uh, and the London, London Sunday Times described him as being the most influential academic in the world today. That's a pretty good rap. I don't know why, but uh, that's what they said. These two Harvard University academics studied 3,000 people in America to find out the differences in terms of attitude and life between people who believe in God, who've got faith, not just believe in God, people who've got active faith in God and those who don't. Because we read a lot of stuff about all the terrible things that, you know, people do in the name of God and how, you know, Richard Dawkins and others say that people who believe in God are responsible for all of the terrible things that happen in the world today, September 11th, uh, that sort of thing. But here's what these two academics concluded. They found that, and I'm quoting from them, on every, on every measurable scale, religious Americans are more generous, more altruistic, and more involved in civic life 
than their secular counterparts. End of quote. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, another quote, they said this. Again, I quote, For the most part, the evidence we review suggests that religiously observant Americans are more civic and in some respects simply nicer. Simply nicer. End of quote. Now that's good news because it's not normally what we read in the newspapers but it doesn't really surprise those of us who've been part of a church community uh, for a long while. And it does, to some extent, reflect what we see in these verses. Because uh, here, as I mentioned, Paul's talking about brotherly love, the love that uh, Christians will have for one another. But that's a love that actually overflows in terms of our attitudes and our behaviour mm, towards out, those outside of the church as well. And the Thessalonian Christians were doing very, very well on this front, which is really nice to hear. Have a look in verses 9 and 10. He says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, but we'll do so anyway. <laughs> uh, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. I take it that he's saying that the God through his Holy Spirit and through the gospel has put this love in your heart that it's just overflowing. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Uh, it's not only within their own church, but they love other Christians as well. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. In a world where selfish ambition and jealousy can split any group of people apart, here's a group of Christians who are known for their love for one another and for their fellow Christians. They're known for it. But nevertheless, Paul urges them to keep on working hard at this. That's why he says in verse 10, we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Keep on doing it. So how can they keep on loving each other more? Well, it seems to me that uh, he expounds on this in verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 are not exclusively about love within the Christian congregation. Uh, it's about that attitude of life. But it starts with a, a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a love for one another, and the overflow of that in terms of the way that we live, the way that we treat people. See what he says. He says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. I find it interesting, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What do you think of that? Some people might say, oh, that doesn't sound very ambitious. <laughs> lead a quiet life. It sounds very passive, very inactive. Does that mean that Paul's saying that you shouldn't really do very much? I don't know, definitely not. I mean, because he, what does he go on to say? He says, 
get a job, uh, work with your hands, be productive uh, so that you're not dependent upon other people. So you've got to have an active life in terms of providing for yourself. Uh, that's fairly obvious. But it seems to me that the quiet life that Paul is talking about uh, is the life which is not full of unnecessary strife. Uh, think about it. It's interesting here that Paul links that with minding your own business. Uh, what happens uh, to the person who habitually does not mind their own business? Do they lead a quiet life? No. Uh, the person gets caught up in other people's problems, in other people's conflicts, in other people's issues, and 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 the, the strife and the tension, uh, they just attract it into their own lives when maybe they don't need to. There's a couple of ways that people can do that. Um, meddling is one of those ways. And that's, uh, of course, when people take it upon themselves to get involved uh, when they really shouldn't and where it's not helpful for them to be involved. And they meddle in, in other people's business. They make other people's business their business. If you want to have a quiet life, don't do that. <laughs> but it also happens when we allow ourselves to get drawn into and caught up in other people's conflicts. Uh, when people are, two people might be in having a disagreement with one another, which, and, and, and we allow them to come to us and for us to then become involved in that when what we really need to be doing is encouraging them to sort it out themselves. Just, you know, Matthew 18 verse 15 says that. Sort these things out yourself. And often that's what does the trick. You can see how this overflows uh, into the secular world in which we live. Um, when you're in the workplace, uh, when you're in your neighbourhood, uh, when you become the person who others know that if they come to you with gossip about someone else that you're probably not going to um, indulge in that. Uh, and you end up living a peaceful life, but not only that, you win the respect of people, don't you? Because they know that you're a person who can be trusted and when they do have a difficulty, uh, which a difficulty where, where you can actually help them with in a positive, constructive way, uh, you're the one that they'll come to. Where they want to share something about themselves, they'll come to you because they know that you're not a person who meddles, you're not a person who attracts strife into your, into your life. And so Paul does say that part of the purpose of living this way is so that we can win the respect of outsiders, so that people know that you're a person in whom God dwells by his spirit and they'll see the goodness of your life They'll respect that and they may even ask the question, what is the reason that you're different? What's the reason for your hope? We can talk to people about uh, the hope we have in the Lord and Saviour Jesus. So then, 
let's talk about ambitions. What are your ambitions in life? Uh, people who don't know God will tell us that there are certain things that really ought to be ambition, that we ought to be striving for. And some of those ambitions are good things. I think it's good to have a good education. It's good to have a good job. It's good to have a nice house to live in and a happy family. These are good ambitions. But the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection must have a profound impact on our ambitions. Uh, Jesus has died to pay for sin so that we can be forgiven, so that we can now enjoy a relationship with God which transcends the transient material things of this life and goes on into all of eternity. And so our ambitions must change. We will still have the ambitions to set in place the physical things that we need in order to just live life. Paul does say, go and get a job, work with your hands, provide for yourself. But many of our ambitions will take a back seat to what should be our big ambition. And that is in verse 1, to live in order to please God. Now this, friends, is not easy. This is hard. And it requires deliberate, intentional, uh, single-minded, tunnel vision kind of effort on a daily basis to say no to sexual immorality, to lead a quiet life which doesn't get embroiled in unfruitful controversies, to get to the end of life and to be able to say that no matter what else I may or may not have achieved, that I have lived faithfully for God, trusting in the gospel, that I've kept the marriage bed pure, that I've loved my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I've won the respect of those who do not know God to the glory of God. That's what it's all about. And if we can do that, then, friends, that's mission accomplished. That's vision achieved. That's, uh, that, that, that is ambition fulfilled. The ambition to live to please our God. Right? Well, let's finish up there and I'll just leave us in prayer. Um, gracious Father, we thank you that uh, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that you've given us a life that's worth living, uh, a life that's worth living to please you. And we do live in this world where it is difficult and challenging to be different. We just do pray, Father God, that uh, we would be uh, keeping on encouraging each other to put you first, to be holy, to be sanctified. Help us, Lord God, to uh, avoid sexual immorality. Help us, Lord God, to uh, uh, live a quiet life, to uh, mind our own business and to win the respect of outsiders uh, so that you would be honoured and people would see our, our lives and be able to say, hey, these Christians are people who simply are nicer. And there's something good about that. And I want to find out more so that we can point people to the reason for our hope 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.